So why don't we open up to Judges chapter 8, and I'll read verses 1 through 3. Uh, So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? It says, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him, talking about Gideon. They reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abzir? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. The title of my sermon this morning is Champions, Cowards, and Evil. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your scriptures. We ask that you would use it for good in our hearts and minds, that we would live as Christian men and Christian women, faithful obedience to you and your rule. Lord, I ask that you pour out your spirit upon all flesh. Empower me, anoint me, help me, O God, to preach this sermon this morning, I ask. Use it for good in the hearts and minds of your people. And I pray and ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. So here we see the Ephraimites were mad because they weren't originally invited to the party. Remember way back in chapter 6, verses 34 and 35? Chapter 6, verse 34 and 35 says, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, then he blew the trumpet, and the Abazites gathered around him, gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, all areas north of Manasseh. And they came up to meet them, talking about meeting the wicked people, come against them. So the Ephraimites were mad because they weren't originally invited to the party. And this may have been due to the fact that the Lord knew they were champions when it came to fighting. And he wanted to teach his people utter dependence upon him. He was going to wheedle things down to 300 men. They weren't called upon to take action until the pursuit of the Midianites moved southeastward towards the Jordan River. Remember the end of chapter 7? Let's look there. Verses 23 and 24. It says, And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So they weren't called upon until the pursuit of the Midianites moved southeastward towards the Jordan River. And verse 25 says that they captured the two princes of the Midianites, Oreb, which means raven, and Zeb, which means wolf. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And that's where we're at now. And they're upset with Gideon. Remember, the Ephraimites were good fighters. They had served well in battle under Ehud, which is recorded in chapter 3. 
and they fought well under Barak, which is recorded in chapter 5. So why were they disrespected here, is their thinking. And that's why they're mad at Gideon. And they did good here. They captured the watering spots and killed two Midianite kings. So they are mad at Gideon, as they say in verse 1 here, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? Why were they so upset? We don't know. The Scriptures doesn't tell us exactly why they were so upset. We can conjecture. Maybe they hated the oppression and wanted to be in on defeating their oppressors. That's a real possibility. Maybe they felt disrespected because next to Judah, Ephraim was the most important tribe in Israel, and they had been left out. Maybe they were just like good old boys who liked going down to the local bar and having a brawl, and they didn't want to miss out on it. Maybe they just wanted some plunder. We don't know, because it doesn't say why. But notice how Gideon handles the situation. He does not answer the question directly. Every good man, every good leader knows there are times where you just avoid answering the question and instead deflect the situation at hand by addressing the underlying need of the questioner. And here Gideon doesn't answer the question and instead heaps praise upon their heads for how well they did in battle. And that meant more to the Ephraimites than getting an answer to the actual question. And it resolved the situation. And notice that vignette here about the Ephraimites is set against the next, which is about two cities that not only did not fight, but which would not even help with the wagon train needs of Gideon and his men. Let's read verses 4 through 9 here of chapter 8. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and three, the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted. This is, they've traveled about 40 miles now, but they're still in pursuit, chasing the Midianites. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand? Why would they say that? Because this was a way of keeping a death count. They would literally cut off the hands of their enemies so they know how many of the enemies they killed. So they're asking, do you have their hands? <laughs> do you have their hands? Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Tear down this tower. So the men of these two cities are like most Americans. You notice that? Namely, cowards. We've seen the champions, the Ephraimites. Now we're in the sermon where we address the cowards. The men of these two cities are like most Americans, namely cowards, 
who as long as they have their peace, their prosperity, and their pathetic little lives, they can live under anyone's rule. Whether it be Alfred the Great or Pol Pot, they can adjust to anything. They just saw 15,000 Midianites come through. And then Gideon wanders up with his measly 300. So they're like, we're not helping you. We think you're going to (laughs) lose. So they give him no food or drink so that they can refresh themselves and continue pursuit of the Midianites. They put their fingers in the air. They would go with whoever won. And it didn't look good for Gideon in their minds. These are men who only care about themselves. They don't care about righteousness. They don't care that God's law and word is being impugned in the land. They don't care that his people and the people of the land are being oppressed. They didn't care about joining a good fight to end the evil. Good men automatically know, death or not, this is a good fight. We're joining it. These types of men aren't like that. They accommodate to what's ever best for them. And that is how most Americans are. These men were like good Americans. They were like most good Christian Americans. And Gideon sees it for what it is, and righteous indignation rises within him. Both cities would suffer his wrath when he returned. And so Gideon continues his pursuit. Verses 10 through 12. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. Remember, they start out with 135,000. For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. God had sent confusion into their camp, and most of them had killed one another. Most all of them had killed one another. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Jagba, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. So they thought they had reached a point where, yeah, Gideon and those guys ain't going to get us now. They bedded down, they come in, and just slaughter them, and capture these two Midianite kings. Capture them. And then Gideon returned to Succoth and Penuel with not only the hands of the two kings, but the kings themselves. And look what happens. Verses 13 through 17. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Heres, and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel, and killed the men of the city. At times, I look at the innumerable Americans just like these two cities, indifferent to the evil, no love or loyalty for our Lord, consumed with themselves, 
so pathetic they can adjust, accommodate, and seem so at home with all the evil. Not a care about it. Even attach little spiritual slogans to justify their indifference. And when I see that, I totally understand Gideon's disgust with the men of these two cities. When I just look at America and the men of America and the Christian men of America, I understand the disgust that Gideon holds here for the men of these two cities. And remember, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Gideon. Let's see what happens next. Verses 18 through 21. Gideon has now captured these two kings. He brings them back. And he's killed all these men. He killed all the men of Penuel. We know he killed at least 77 of the leaders in Succoth. And now he turns his attention to the two Midianite kings. And he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are. So were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Remember, Gideon's father was well off. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Zeb and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeb and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Had they not killed Gideon's brothers, Gideon may have let them live. That's what it says here. He says, if you had not killed my brothers, I would not kill you. Think of this. Think of this. Gideon had more disgust for the self-absorbed dopes in Succoth and Penuel who refused to fight the evildoers than he did the evildoers themselves. Ponder that. More disgust for the men who wouldn't fight against the evil than he had for those doing the evil themselves. He kills them first. And now he's going to deal with these evil kings. And any man who has ever engaged fighting against the evil, which is amazingly few men in America, will tell you that is the case. That the disdain is more for those who live under the evil and accommodate the evil, hence are enabling the evil, than there is for those doing the evil. Why? Because there's something innately disgusting about men who always have a hundred little excuses for living under tyranny. Who have a hundred little excuses why they must go along with the evil to get along. That is disgusting. That's what disgusts good men. When they see that. So he had more disgust for the men in those two cities than these two kings. So Gideon signals he may have let them live, but because they killed his brothers, he would not. He may not have killed them. As there was the other matter of that day, namely, total military victory wasn't realized or understood to be so until the enemy leaders themselves were put to death. 
So Gideon decides to put them to death after he has put to death the compliant and self-absorbed of Succoth and Penuel. And he wants his son to do the killing, but he is young and is too squeamish to do it. He's a youth. And the reason he may not want to have done it, two reasons for that. One, he still had some innocence to him. With his few years on earth, he simply had not seen enough evil yet that he just couldn't bring himself to killing them. When one has seen what the evil of men, the evil of wicked rulers does to other men, they have far less compunction about hating the evil, about stopping the evil. You do know, the scriptures state, you who love the Lord hate evil, unquote. And that is a command. And I see precious little of it amongst Christian American people. Precious little hatred of evil. What I see is an allowance of it. Just being good with it. I just expect sinners to act like that. All their little slogans to justify their indifference to the evil. And you know why they have that indifference? So they can carry on with their little self-absorbed life. What's important to them which most churches teach them what's important to you is what's important, what's important to the American culture at large. Pursuit of wealth and ease. So, that may, so he may have simply been so young, he still had innocence and a lack of experience with evil and evil men. Or two, it could be that Gideon had not properly taught his son about evil and the need to confront and kill it. How that is one way we express our love for our Lord and our neighbor. Confronting and stopping evil. That is one way we express our love for our Lord and our neighbor. I remember when my son Jeremiah was five years old, and we were doing our nightly prayers, and Jeremiah sat there and he prayed, Jesus, help the wicked to go to hell. And that, of course, got Dad's attention. <laughs> and um, I realized at that point, I think I got the teaching him about evil thing down really good. <laughs> we'll do a little more emphasis on mercy, calling men to Christ, preaching the gospel. <laughs> I told Jeremiah, I said, we don't have to pray for them to go to hell. They'll get there all on their own just fine. <laughs> so. So in verse 21, the two kings say, So Zeb and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeb and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. The, the crescent ornaments on the camels' necks. One of those things you're always, you read stuff like that in the Bible, you're like, so why was that detail important? <laughs> So now, of course, they would want Gideon to do it because, first off, it was considered a shame to be killed by a woman or a youth. So these two kings are men's men, you know, and they don't want to be killed by this young youth. They'd rather be killed by Gideon. That'd be a great honor to them. So first off, it was considered a shame to be killed by a woman or a youth. And second, their death would likely be less painful because Gideon would deliver a quick, clear, and convincing blow. Whereas some youth there might 
have to hack away four or five times. The matter about the crescent moon, we see from that, the Muslims would later embrace the long-worshipped moon god under the guise of Islam. This has been part of the Ishmaelites forever, this crescent moon thing. It didn't just come along with Islam. It had already been part of the thing, the moon god, false worship, all that stuff. In verses 22 through 35, we conclude with how things went after the battle until Gideon's death. And I'm just going to read through here and make some comments to end this sermon. It says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. This is powerful. The tribes would like to unify under Gideon. But Gideon understood the more important need was for them to come under the rule of the Lord. He knew it. So he advocated direct theocracy. All governments are theocracies. God is the one who's the ultimate authority. Men either obey his rule or rebel against it and behave as tyrants. You understand that. This is direct theocracy. So he advocated that rather than monarchy. A well-known saying is this. It's often attributed to William Penn, but there's no verification that he actually said it. But here's what it said. If men will not be governed by God, then they will be ruled by tyrants. This is what Gideon knew. Men needed to submit to his rule, to have any hope of society being right and political rule being proper. And this is America's great need in our day. Our nation, the people and magistrates of our nation, must repent of their rebellion against the Lord and submit to his rule. And so, as his ambassadors, you and I, we must call men to repentance. And we must instruct them in his law, word, and gospel. Look at verses 24 through 26 at what happens next here. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. You want to look like some, you know, guy, you know, earrings, little puny things, right? Earrings. He didn't ask for these big pieces of gold or anything like But if you get a lot of earrings which all the um, Ishmaelites wore earrings. And there were 135,000 of them. (laughs) You're going to end up with a a pile of gold. You're going to have lots of gold, lots of gold in your hands. So he says to him, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. They're like, yeah, we'll, we'll give up the earrings. We have these other pieces of gold from the plunder. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, which was a massive amount of gold, be worth millions of dollars today. And then it says, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. 
Okay. And then look what it says in verse 27. Then Gideon, he gets all this gold and says, Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon into his house. And I want to talk about this ephod just momentarily. An ephod was like a garment, apron-type garment that the priest wore in order to do service to the Lord. Amen? Understand Gideon did not set this ephod up as an idol. He did not set it. He did not intend it to be an idol. Rather, as Matthew Henry rightly pointed out, quote, he intended to preserve a memorial of so divine a victory. So you have this ephod like the priests wear, showing the great victory that God had brought there for the Israelites. But the problem with it is that it turned into something more to the Israelites, something more than just something to remember the great victory that God had given. Men began to view it as sacred and something to revere. The Catholics do this with their statues and their relics. But the Protestants do such things with their love affair with buildings and real estate. And all men can do this in some odd way. Something within their life of a religious nature ensnares them. Makes them to view or embrace something false that turns them from wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And at the end of this chapter, you see the Israelites go back into outright Baal worship again. Whenever you have a falseness in our worship of the Lord, it makes men that more susceptible to worse errors. And notice this ephod ended up hurting his house too. Look at the end of verse 27. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. We have to look well to our homes, men, and make sure holiness is there, make sure goodness is there, that we hold our wives dear, that we hold our children dear, that we love him first so we can do right by them. Amen? It's hugely important. And Gideon was a family man. Look what it goes on and says, Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jeroboam, that's Gideon, remember, they changed his name, the son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. So he's a family man. <laughs> Oh, man, you back yourself into a corner and then you don't know what to do, right? (laughs) So. He got to do it, though, didn't he? I told my wife for the last 30 years, I look forward to the day the wicked are subdued. And we can sit on the porch, I can hold your hand, we can say sweet things to each other, watch our kids, now our grandkids, pretty soon our (laughs) great-grandkids, ride their bikes up and down the sidewalk. Amen? And pet our dog if we have one of those. But we've decided we don't want a dog anymore. (laughs) So here in verse 30, we see that he had 70 sons. We don't know how many daughters he had. He had many wives. So here again we see polygamy. As for myself, I'm good with monogamy. 
I'm a huge monogamist, and my wife Clara likes it that way. And I'm not saying anything more about that subject. Verse 31 says, And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. And Abimelech will become prominent in the next chapter, chapter 9. Verses 33 and 34, uh, 32, pardon me, through 34. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abzites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. Thus, the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. So here we go again. And all of human history shows man has never stopped this cycle. Man seems very competent at one thing. Very competent at one thing. Never learning from history. And yes, men do not learn from history. And in our nation, they are not taught proper history, if any history at all. And that is why we must go and preach the law and gospel to men. Amen. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you that you have preserved your scriptures down through the ages so that we can know your ways and your thoughts. So we can know your commandments, your exhortations, the narratives that were recorded there and learn from it all. And Lord, let us live in obedience to your word. God, we ask that we would not be just hearers of the word, but doers. And Lord, we look to you to accomplish that in our lives. For you are the vine and we are the branches. And we can do nothing without you. May we spend time in prayer with you, gaining strength of heart, mind, body, soul, O God. May we read your word which is spirit and life to us. Lord, may we be your ambassadors in the earth, bold, filled with your spirit, making you known to the men and the governments of men in this earth. Lord, we ask that your blessing would be upon each home represented here. Lord, that your spirit would be upon the home of all those listening and that you would do a great work and use these homes mightily as a bright light in a dark nation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, Father. May we see the idols of our day toppled. May we see the evil ideologies confronted. May we see the tyrants resisted because of men's love for you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. You could be seated. And um, we're going to take communion at this time. And you can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. And I have to tell you, I have taken many of you for granted for a long time since all this fiction started. But I've learned from talking with other people what a blessing it is to pastor people like you. Um, Because 
I've had so many people, when I tell them we don't wear masks, we sit right next to each other, and we don't behave like Jojo the Circus Monkey, they look at me and they're like, your whole congregation thinks that way? And I go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they all do. <laughs> it's like, and it's given me such a joy to realize that. What a blessing you are to me. I've had a number of people over the last several weeks who visited from distances come here to this church because they just wanted to be with believers who would gather together and not live the fiction. And with tears in their eyes, expressed to me how much it means to them just to be here, to see no mass faces, to see people fellowshipping, hugging each other, not li- how much that means to them. And I took it all for granted. And it's really cost, caused me, it's caused me to see how awesome it is to pastor here. And I, I'm thankful for every one of you. And you mean a lot to me, brothers and sisters. So in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read about the Lord's table, and it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Till he comes. Amen. This is a great salvation that has been provided to us through Christ. We should have been put to death for our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And yet God in his mercy sent his own son to die in our place so that if we'll believe in him, God forgives us of our sins and we have right standing with him. We can actually meet with him, experience his presence, taste him. Amen? That's a huge, massive deal. And this time at his table reminds us this is our sole means to him is through Christ. The bread representing his body, the fruit of the vine representing his shed blood. Nothing else is at his table. It's through Christ alone whereby God accepts us. doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for five seconds or 55 years. It's still the same. Christ alone. Amen? That is a great salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask and pray, O Lord that we would make this great salvation known to others, that we would not hide it under a bushel, keeping it to ourselves, Lord, but that we would put it on a candlestick, that we would herald it from the rooftops, that we would not think, well, they already all know, Lord, but that we would understand, no, they don't. And even if they've heard it before, they need to hear it again. They need to know you, your ways, your thoughts. And Lord, with dark days in our midst and ahead, Lord, we pray and ask that it would have that good effect that it often does, that men have ears to hear. Lord, we just ask and pray that you embolden each one by the power of your Holy Spirit to make you known to men this coming week and in the days ahead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake.